I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 25. After declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that believers are declared righteous by grace through faith, Paul faced an objection to that good news. So in Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Paul says, no way, by no means. Instead, we establish the law or fulfill the law by faith. Paul then goes on to explain by offering up Abraham as a precedent for his gospel of faith. We, we looked at Abraham as precedent in our last lesson, and we're going to finish up in this lesson. We're going to finish up with Romans chapter 4. And to get started with this lesson, let's think about what it means that the law is fulfilled by faith. There are two different contexts in which we can say that the law is fulfilled by faith. And how the law is fulfilled by faith depends on which context we're in, which question of covenant are we talking about. Are we talking about what makes me acceptable to be in relationship with God? Well, then faith fulfills law in a special way for that question, what makes me acceptable? Or are we talking about the second question of covenant? How do I please my God in whom I'm already in relationship? If the faith still fulfills law for that question, but in a, in a different way, And we need to keep those questions straight so we don't confuse the answers. So in Romans 4, we're still talking about the first question of covenant. What makes me acceptable to be in covenant relationship with the Holy God? And what we find with Abraham is the same thing we find with Jesus. The same way we answer what makes me acceptable is not changed in the gospel. What's new is now we see how it works. God made a promise. He signed for a debt but that debt remained unpaid. So Old Covenant believers trusted that God would follow through with his promise to clear the debt. So God made this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. How could Abraham know it would be fulfilled? And what's the weak link in the promise? God or Abraham? Abraham's the weak link. So how could Abraham know that the promise would be fulfilled if he could not know that whether or not he'd keep his part. God had something radical to communicate to Abraham. God was going to communicate to Abraham that the keeping of this covenant is not dependent on you. And to make this clear, God used a a known form of communication. It was this this idea of a suzerain vassal treaty or a a treaty that a great king makes with a a lesser king. And the the vassal makes a, a covenant with his greater king through a sacrifice. That's, that's the oath. He cuts covenant. And in doing that, he calls a curse on himself. If I break covenant with you, great king, let it be done to me what was done to these sacrificial animals. And that's the ceremony that God set up with Abraham in Genesis 15. So when he was told to cut the animals in half, everybody reading that culturally knew what was going on. We're setting up, we're setting up a covenant treaty. God sets up the known to communicate radical good news. And so rather than allow Abraham to follow through with the oath of covenant, God put Abraham into a deep sleep and God himself performed the covenant oath. God passed through as fire and smoke. God passed through the sacrificial animals, effectively saying, if you break covenant with me, me, Abraham, let me die. This is amazing grace, how sweet the sound. This is, you you don't know how you can keep covenant with me? You don't have to keep covenant. You have to believe me to keep covenant. 
So this the promise, the promised blessing of provision and protection and purpose can be fulfilled because God is willing to assume the debt of covenant unfaithfulness. And in the day of Christ Jesus, God called for payment of the debt, and then he himself paid that debt. So the first question of covenant, what makes me acceptable? How can I be recognized as righteous? That question is answered for us in the exact same way that it was answered for Abraham, by grace, through faith. And that's how faith fulfills the covenant law in regards to the first question of covenant. What does it mean to say that faith fulfills or faith establishes the law? The law demands justice. Death must be paid for the wages of sin is death. The law demands this. The righteous requirement of the law is established or fulfilled when we place our faith in Jesus. But we've not addressed the second question of covenant, not yet. The second question of covenant asks, how then shall we live? So what's the role of old covenant law in answering that question? Mosaic law doesn't have a primary role in answering that question. It'll still have much to teach us. But we do not please God by obedience to the Mosaic law. That's not our covenant. Jesus, that was true of old covenant believers. When they were asking, how do we then uh, please our God? They looked to Mosaic law to, to get instruction for God for how they ought to live. But when Jesus came, Jesus was the mediator of a new covenant. The, the, the writer to Hebrews calls it a better covenant. We're under a new and better covenant. So if I want to know how am I to to live for my God, how do I please my God? I'm looking for the new covenant for my instructions. And I I need to clarify some language that may be confusing. I've used the language of law when talking about the two questions of covenant as synonymous with commandment or stipulation or good works. I've used it basically to refer to the do's and don'ts of covenant relationship. So in that sense, there's law in the old covenant. There are lots of do's and don'ts. And there's law in the New Covenant. There are lots of do's and don'ts in the New Covenant. And that's a valid way to use the term. But Paul uses law in the next several chapters almost exclusively to refer to the whole Mosaic Covenant. And he uses the term grace to, to refer to our New Covenant reality. So I, need to, I want to fit my language with Paul. So from now on, unless I say differently, I'm going to use law to, reser, to refer to Mosaic Covenant and grace to refer to new covenant. And following Paul's language here in chapter 4, we'll use promise to refer to the Abrahamic covenant. And, I, and then I'll use the words commandment or stipulation or requirements that to refer to the specific do's and don'ts of the covenant. So there were the do's and don'ts of the promise, the do's and don'ts of the law, and the do's and don'ts of grace. And my basic understanding of the relationship between the covenants is that the covenant of promise made to Abraham established for us the answer, how do I become acceptable to God? And we are reckoned righteous by grace through faith, whether we're in Abraham's family under the covenant of promise, whether we're an Israelite with Moses under the covenant of law, or whether we're a New Testament believer under the covenant of grace. All of those covenants have the same problem. As Paul said in chapter 3, verse 21, By the law, no flesh is justified. No covenant can give us a list of stipulations or requirements that we can live out and so be justified by God. And it's not the problem of the covenant, it's the problem of our flesh. We're going to break covenant. 
So grace is the only way to answer this question for human beings. So even though we're going to call the new covenant grace, using Paul's language as we, as we go forward, grace is foundational to all of the covenants. The promise established the answer to the first question of covenant. And then when God called forth the nation of Israel from Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and he gave them what was for them a new covenant. Uh, the covenant of, of Moses was, was new at the time, and God answered for them how to live out relationship of grace established by the promise. They were saved by grace through faith, just like Abraham. But then they're asking the question, how do we live this out as a people, as a nation? And they should live it out according to a Mosaic covenant of law. A new mediator of a new covenant has come for us, and Jesus has established something new for us. So when we're addressing the first question of covenant, it's the same. We're saved by grace through faith. But when we're thinking the next question, how then do we live for our God? We have something new. The foundation is still the promise. We're still saved by grace through faith. That promise is fulfilled in Jesus. But the Mosaic law has fulfilled its purpose in answering the second question of covenant, that the Mosaic law's purpose was for the nation Israel as the people of God. The new covenant of grace has now taken that role for us, for believers who were under this new covenant. How do I please my Lord? Not by following old covenant design for life. That would be trying to put new wine back in an old wineskin. We're not trying to live out new covenant through the wineskin of the old covenant. We please God not by seeking to live according to their covenant, but seeking to live according to our covenant. And this is where Paul's going in chapters 5 through 8. What's new about our new covenant in relation to the second question? How shall we live? If it really is a new wineskin, then we're really going to have to pay close attention to what's radically different, what is new about the new covenant in answering the question, how ought we live? But we're, listen, we're almost done with the first question of covenant. We're, gonna establish, we're establishing the precedent of Abraham. And during the rest of Romans chapter 4, Paul has four concepts for us to finish drawing out to understand the covenant of promise and how that helps us to understand the covenant of grace. These concepts are going to help us finish up this, this precedent, finish up the first question of covenant, what makes me acceptable, so that we can really dig in in the next uh, four chapters this, into this question of how then ought we live. So rather than go through verse by verse the rest of chapter four, it's quite long. I want to cover a concept at a time. And these are the concepts, the four concepts that I see Paul drawing out of the life of Abraham. So concept number one, covenant requirements follow after covenant acceptance. Concept number two, God's promise depends on God's grace. Concept number three, faith is the belief that God will perform what God has promised. And concept number four, the promise to Abraham set the precedent for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's just a summing up of what we already seen in that fourth concept. Let's start with the first concept, and we're going we're gonna to need to read chapter 4, 9 through 12. Covenant requirements follow covenant acceptance. All right, here we go. Romans 4, 9 through 12. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being uncircumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Okay, that might be confusing. It feels confusing when I read it out loud, but when we go through it slowly, there's really a basic point that's being made here. The covenant requirements follow covenant acceptance. So let's remind ourselves of the story. Genesis 12 to 25 tells the story of Abraham's life. Well, it doesn't really tell us the story of Abraham's life. It's only 13 chapters after all. Um, So it's frustratingly short. I'd love to know more about the story of Abraham's life. Uh, And we start that story when Abraham's already 75 years old. So maybe it's better to say that Genesis 12 to 25 gives us significant moments out of Abraham's life. God was doing something new with Abraham, and he, he shifted from covenant with all people in Adam and Noah our covenant was all, all humanity. And then at the Tower of Babel, we, we come up on a divide-and-conquer strategy. God has broken all the peoples out into many natures and cultures, and he's going to reach all of them through one. He made a special covenant with one people, they're not even yet a people, to bless all nations. And so the glimpses we get of Abraham's life show a story of struggle, a story of faith, and a story of covenant and we're going we're gonna to note four critical moments of covenant. We talked about these in the last lesson. There's covenant promise, covenant ceremony, covenant sign, and covenant test. And these four show up in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. And last lesson, we really focused on the covenant of promise moment in Genesis chapter 12 and the covenant ceremony moment in Genesis chapter 15. So that promise came in in Genesis 12. The ceremony didn't come for another 10 years when God actually cut the covenant with Abraham and reaffirmed the promise that he initially gave Abraham up in the the land of Ur. And in the cutting of covenant, he established that this promise is going to be be fulfilled by grace. You receive it by faith. It's not fulfilled by your ability to keep it. So God took the covenant curse on himself while Abraham was passive. Abraham slept. And Paul points out in this, it's a little bit of confusing passage that I just read, the idea that the covenant sign came much later after the covenant was cut. So from promise to covenant ceremony, we had 10 years, but from covenant ceremony to covenant sign, we've had another 13 years, because Ishmael wasn't even an idea in Abraham's mind in Genesis 15. Well, there was a hope of a son, but but not the way they were going to get Ishmael, so he wasn't born yet. But here he's 13 years old when we get to Genesis 17, and it's a bit of bad luck for Ishmael because, you know, he's had to be 13 before he gets circumcised. But it's good news for us. So Paul's point is that there is a clear separation between first question of covenant and second question of covenant. Abraham was declared righteous by grace through faith in Genesis 15 long before God communicated any specific requirements to live out that covenant. So there's he may have communicated to the Abraham. I assume that Abraham knew some idea of how God wanted him to live it out, but in the, the story that we've received in Genesis, there's an intentional delay in giving us any of those stipulations. 
So there's there's no question about whether circumcision was necessary or not. That gets confused later by by Jews for whom circumcision has become so important. But Paul's saying, but go back to the original story. Go look at Abraham. Abraham knew he was accepted 13 years before God even told him about circumcision. You know, it's not circumcision and it's not necessary. It's the same problem some people have today thinking that baptism is necessary for salvation. That's No, it's a beautiful sign of something that has to happen spiritually. It's a, um, a sign of the faith that we do have in Jesus, but it's attributing much more to the sign than God ever intended if you think that the ritual somehow saves. So by waiting 13 years, God made it very clear that Abraham's acceptance is based on his faith. Abraham is accepted by grace through faith. Paul's pointing this out to the Jews of his day, because as, as, much, as much importance as you guys might want to attach to symbolic ceremony of circumcision, you can't argue from Genesis that that is what made Abraham acceptable. There's too big of a gap between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, yet it's a powerful symbol. It's like with, with, with all cutting of covenants, this is a special cutting that each family that has a baby boy performs. It's, it's the calling of a curse on oneself. If we as a family turn away from the worship of Yahweh, then let our family, our seed, be cut off from the tribes of Abraham. That's what covenant communicates. It is a literal cutting of covenant, and it's calling of a curse, kind of like the walking through the animals. But this, this curse is let our seed be cut off if we become a family that rejects Yahweh. If we become worshiping of pagan gods, cut us off from the nation. That's what we're doing with circumcision. There's also Moses also picked up with the, the uh, negative symbol, the calling of curse. There's also a blessing inherent in the idea of circumcision. And Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 30, that this, this recognition that what we need is for God to circumcise our hearts, that this outward sign needs to be a symbol of something that happens into us inwardly. If we're really going to love God with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul, we need God to cut sin away from our, from our inner being and, and bring forth this new birth or some kind of new spiritual fruit. And so circumcision was a powerful covenant sign, both in the idea of calling curse, but also in the idea of expressing blessing, but it is not necessary for salvation. It is not necessary for acceptance. And that's what Paul is pointing out here when he keeps talking about this is something Abraham received, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he later received a sign of circumcision, but that was a sign of the faith he already had while he was uncircumcised. So God adds circumcision as a covenant stipulation, and it goes with the promise. And, and much later, it would, be, it would t- be taken up in the, in the law, the covenant of law, and it belongs to the second question of covenant. You know, now that we're accepted by faith, how should we live out our covenant with you, O Lord? How do we please you? Well, Genesis 17 is giving part of that answer. God is saying, you know what? This is one thing I want you to do. I want you to circumcise all of your boys as a sign of the covenant relationship we have established by grace through faith. And if God chooses to change the requirements of covenant, he's free to do that. If he wants to give Moses covenant stipulations that include circumcision, then great. And that's what he did. He had the 
Circumcision was part of the covenant with Abraham. That was the expected stipulation. And then it carried right on over into the covenant of law, and the, the Israelites were expected to, to continue. So believers under the old covenant who want to know how to live for God, they know this is one of the things they ought to do. They should circumcise their boys. That that's, shows that they have a heart to obey God, a heart to please God. Hopefully they get the symbolism of what they're doing. But if God decides not to include the stipulation of circumcision as part of a new covenant, like the new covenant he made in Jesus, then great. You know, those of us under the new covenant, we're asking the same question. What do you want us to do, God? How do we live for you? And part of God's answer for us is, you know what? Don't be circumcised. That's not your covenant. You be baptized. That's that's the covenant sign I want you all to perform under this new covenant. This is a new wineskin, so we need to make some changes, and we're going to make some of our changes in ritual. It's great that they were circumcised, but you be baptized. So now Paul, taking us back to Abraham, he's showing us that it's not the covenant stipulations that are essential for entering into relationship with God. Circumcision is not essential. Baptism is not essential. What is essential is God's grace received by faith. So whether we're talking about a Jew who feels like he still ought to be circumcising his baby boy or or a non-Jew who has absolutely no plans for circumcision whatsoever, both can call Abraham father if, like Abraham, both depend by faith on God's grace for inclusion into the family. Abraham is the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised because of this concept, covenant requirements follow after covenant acceptance. Okay, that was concept number one. Let's, let's move to concept number two, which is that God's promise is secured by God's grace. And we're going to see this in Romans 4, 13 to 17. It's a point we've already been making where when we look at the covenant ceremony of Genesis 15, the faith of Abraham is placed in the center of the dialogue, in the center of the chapter. So we get God and Abraham talking, and then later we get God and Abraham talking. But right in the middle of all of that, it says um, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. So faith is in the, the center of that covenant moment in Genesis chapter 15, but grace is the anchor. Grace, that covenant moment with God walking through those animals and, and declaring with, with Abraham asleep and God saying, if you, if you die, I mean, if you break covenant with me, then let me die. That, that idea of grace, that's the, the anchor. It's not the strength of faith that counts, but the strength of the one who's offering the gift. And we need to pay close attention to Paul's language here because he introduces a concept that that's going to come back several times through the letter. So as, we're, as we get ready to read these next few verses, let's, let's pay attention. Let's not mi- miss it. We're going to read Romans 4, 13 to 17. And also notice the repetition of the word promise. This is why we're calling Abraham's covenant the covenant of promise. So here we go, 4, 13 to 17. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no wrath, there also is no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him, 
whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. All right, let's let's go through that again and let's kind of take it verse by verse and point out some things so that we started with, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. And I think by now we've got that. The promise is not on the basis of living up to law, but on a declaration of righteousness that comes by faith. And then Paul goes on to make a really strong statement we need to pay attention to. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. Now this is strong. It's not just that faith is a good idea, but if the promise was a covenant of law, some kind of religious contract, the promise would be nullified. And Paul's turning this language around from the original question. The original objection was that faith nullifies the law. Paul says, no, no, if you think the law was the basis of covenant, then by law you've actually nullified the promise. Faith doesn't nullify law. Law nullifies promise if you misunderstand law. Well, what do you mean, Paul? How so? What are you talking about? Well, verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. So this is what we've been saying. If the promise depended on Abraham to live out the law of God, then at some point, Abraham would have stumbled. In fact, he did stumble, didn't he? Remember those two times he said, Sarah's not my wife, she's my sister? Well, that wasn't a complete lie. She was his half-sister, but I can't believe that God approved of him allowing his wife, the mother of the covenant child, to be taken by Pharaoh and then again by Abimelech. So like, like any man, Abraham stumbled, Abraham fell. And like any man, if forced to make a legal defense before God, Abraham would be judged guilty. For the law brings wrath on sinful men, and all men sin. Therefore, the law always brings wrath. So consider the next part of the verse, verse 15. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. And This language is a little odd. Is there no law in the court of God? Are there no righteous requirements? Well, that, that's not what this means by no law. What this means is that when the standard of the law is not applied. So if, if it is possible for us to approach the bench of God and, and, and ask God, is there some different way? You know, if, if you judge me by law, I am dead. Is there, is there no other way that I can be evaluated? And, and if there is some other way, if there's some way that I can be evaluated other than by law, then there will be no violation of law taken into account. That's what this means by there is no violation. There's no violation if we're not even using law as a standard by which I'm judged. And that's exactly what God has done for us. He allows us to make a defense based on grace. So we're not even going to consider the law. Not that the law is ignored, but that the, the law has been satisfied in Jesus Christ, which makes it possible, since he has already paid my penalty, it makes it possible for me to be evaluated, not on basis of law, where there's going to be violation, but on basis of grace, where law is not even taken into consideration. So I, there's, not, there's no violation, not because we've not violated righteous law, but because it's no longer a question of moral law. It now becomes a question of grace. 
And then verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith in order order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. The only way for God to make a promise with Abraham and his descendants and any human beings for that matter is for that promise to be based on grace and received by faith. And the strength of the promise is based on the giver of grace. We, we now simply receive the gift offered or we reject the gift offered. That's the only way to guarantee the gift if the gift depends on God and not on us. And Paul goes on to repeat that implication that if it is a gift offered by grace and received by faith, then it's available universally to all who would receive the gift. So not only, this is continuing in verse 16, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So when he says not only to those who are of the law, he doesn't mean those who are righteous by the law. He means those who are seeking to fulfill the second question of covenant by law. So those who are under Mosaic law, and as they they seek to live for God under law, then the promise is guaranteed to them by faith, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who who are not seeking um, to fulfill the covenant of law, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So this is concept number two. God's promise is secured by God's grace. Now, God grace is God's side of the promise, the next concept Paul draws from Abraham looks at our side of the the human side of the promise, which is faith. So let's keep going and let's read chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Faith is the human correspondence to grace. We don't want to either overestimate or underestimate the nature of Abraham's faith. For Abraham to experience the reality of relationship with God, he had to trust that God would fulfill his promises. Paul describes that faith in verse 21. He says that Abraham, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. That was the nature of Abraham's faith. He truly believed that God would fulfill the promises that God had made. And that true belief was shown by choices and by actions that Abraham made in his life. It's, it's quite difficult to understand what someone means by saying, I believe in God, when that belief does not change how he or she lives out their life. If you claim to have faith in God, and yet your faith does not significantly impact your calendar or your wallet, then what does it even mean to say you have faith? You know, James says, the demons believe in God and shudder. So we're, we're not talking about simple assent that God exists, demons assent that God exists. Faith is more than mere belief. Faith is throwing in with God, stepping under his banner, trusting him in what he says is true and what he says he will do. Trust is shown in action. So you can say you trust that a chair is going to hold you up, 
But if you still refuse to sit in it, your words contradict the reality of your heart. You might be saying, I trust, but your action says, I do not trust. So our inner faith, if we really trust God, that's going to compel us to action at different points in our life. So you can ask yourself that question, what life decisions have I made or what life decisions am I making that would cause a neighbor or a family member or a coworker to say, what in the world are you doing? Why would you do that? And then you say, I think it's what God wants me to do. And they say, you can't know that. And then you just shrug because you don't really have anything else to say because you're really trusting God. Whether it's rational or not, it makes sense to you because you think this is what God wants you to do. You're basing it on his promises, and that's it. And so what what could example, what's an example of that? So I don't know. We can think of all kinds of things. You could, it could be you're refusing to do something questionable at work, even if it might get you in trouble or get you fired. You know, or you're, maybe you're, it's a change of jobs, or maybe you've decided to homeschool your kids, or you're going on a mission trip, or you, you decide to buy somebody a car. You, you regularly visit the neighbor nobody can stand. You, you read your Bible every day at work. You volunteer. You enjoy worship. Um, you, you put your money where your mouth is, and you make space available in your calendar. If you really believe, you really believe that God is king of all, that he's holy, that he loves you, that he promises to care for you and keep you and make you a blessing, then how can there not be an effect on the way you live your life? True faith is trust in God, and real trust in God produces life change or produces life action. So what did that look like for Abraham? So let's notice first things. We're we're looking at this moment. It says Abraham was 100 years old, and, um, and he did not waver in respect to the promise. I think we're talking about right at this moment when God said, you're going to have a child and it's going to be through Sarah, that Abraham did not waver. But that not wavering is, is, is a, I think it's a characteristic we see through Abraham's life. I'm going to have to defend that because it certainly looks sometimes like he's wavering. I think he didn't waver in regard to the promise But there's something else that's being said here, and that's that he grew strong in faith. And so if I'm right that Abraham um, didn't waver in his belief that God was going to fulfill his promise, it's, it's also right to say, but he was weak in faith at some point, because here he grows strong in faith. And that implies he was weaker in order to be able to grow stronger. And so there's, even if he's able to have a consistency in his faith from his the first moment of, of receiving the promise, there's still a process of growth. So I think Paul's giving us a lens here by which we can look at the life of Abraham and that we, we could interpret his actions in a variety of ways. That's a problem with biblical narrative. There are different ways you could, you look at what people do and say in their struggles and their sin. And it's, you know, we're, are we talking about a Saul who, who struggled but didn't really seem to have a heart for God at all? Um, or are we talking about a David who really struggled, but he really inside had a heart for God? And so I think Paul is giving us a lens for Abraham's narrative that he really had faith, even though there were moments of struggle, and he grew strong in that faith, unwavering but in need of growth. So something real had clicked in Abraham's soul. And what we're not sure about his family, to be honest. He, he does go for them to get a wife for Isaac, 
and they under they know who Yahweh is. But Joshua, at the end of his book, he also lets us know that that Abraham's family back up there by the river, by the Euphrates, they worship gods beyond the river, and that means they worship the gods of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. So it sounds like there was some good and bad going on. There was a little mixing of true worship and culture. There was there was a, a a culturalness to his family background, but for him, something clicked in his soul. He heard God. He believed God, and because he believed God, because he had true faith, he picked up his family and moved. His trust in God caused him or compelled him to action that made a difference in his life. I mean, God had given him great news. I mean, we have to be honest about that. I'm going to bless you with provision and protection and purpose, with land, with children. And that's a, that's a great gospel for anybody. But the gospel's great in Jesus when we first give it. And, and all you have to do is receive it by faith, and then you're in the family of God, and God is going to protect you and, and make you into who you were created to be, and you're going to live with him forever. That is awesome. And yet how many people say, no, no, thank you. I like my life the way it is. Thanks, but no thanks. Abraham didn't say thanks, but no thanks. Abraham said, yes, sir, thank you so much. I trust you, and I'm, I believe you're going to follow through on your word, and so I'm following you. And I can only imagine what his family thought when he tried to explain to them that God told him to move down south and that Sarah, his old lady, was going to have children. And I can, I can kind of see them smiling. They're all smiling and staying there waving at him as he, he goes off, and they're, they're whispering to each other, that boy ain't right. You know, Religion's gone to his head. It's fine to believe in God so long as it don't change nothing. But by, by now, uh, y'all come back. And so Abraham heads on because Abraham believed God. And in that, that faith really didn't waver through the whole story of his life, you know, or, or did it? I said I'm going to have to prove this. But there are high moments. Um, Abraham trusted God to show him where to settle. Abraham braved a rescue mission. You know, he went and, and fought and brought Lot back when he'd been captured. He, Abraham avoid, unlike Lot, Abraham avoid, he stayed away from Sodom and Gomorrah. He let God lead him in the land, but he did compassionately argue on their behalf. So he has some high moments, but on the other hand, we already mentioned he lied about Sarah um, twice, putting her into two very compromising situations with foreign rulers. He, he questioned God during that, that covenant cutting ceremony. You know, how can I believe God? I'm going to have children. How can I believe I'm going to have land? Um, he gave in to Sarah's suggestion that he have a child with her maidservant. And so, so what does that mean if it doesn't mean that he, he wavered? And well, when we, we notice these things in Abraham's life that, you know, wherever he went, he built altars. So he arrives in the promised land, he builds an altar and prays Yahweh. Then he goes down to Egypt, he comes back, he builds an altar and he prays to Yahweh. So he's, he's got this consistent worship of Yahweh. Another thing we notice is that Abraham he always responds positively to the direct word of God. When God says something, Abraham, he's like, yes, sir, I, I trust you. I'm doing it. This is good. Let's go with it. So when he understood what God wanted clearly, he did it. Abraham was basing his life on the promises of God. But, but reality, he was often confused about how it ought to be worked out, and sometimes he was afraid. Maybe he was lustful. Maybe he was impatient. So he's, he's helping God out with the promise, both because of his, his confusion and also because of the, the sin of his, his heart. 
And at times that means it looks like he, he doesn't really believe. I think the reality is he did, but even in his unbelief, he was overcome by his, his flesh. And so there's, there, doubting is a reality in the life of people who truly believe. Abraham always came back to the central truth that God's real, God's made a promise, God keeps his promises. And that affected how Abraham lived his life. So our fourth covenant moment in Abraham's life comes almost at the very end. It's in Genesis chapter 22, and it's about 35 years after God gave Abraham the promise. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And I'm convinced that God never, ever would have asked the Abraham of Genesis 12 to sacrifice his son. That Abraham had true faith, but he, he didn't know God that well. He didn't know himself that well. His faith was fresh. It was young. That's, it, that's very positive, but it was also naive and weak. And he, he would have thought that God was asking for human sacrifice. He did not know God that well. He knew the culture. And he would have thought, this is what people do. If you really want to please God, and he's made this promise, and I really want to show God that I believe he's going to give me descendants, I'm going to sacrifice my firstborn. I'm going to kill my firstborn, give him up to this God so that this God will want to then really bless me. He, he could not have understood in Genesis 12 what he understood 35 years later with such strong conviction. 35 years later, he knew that the promised child is the one who comes from me and Sarah, and that his name is Isaac, and that from Isaac, nations are going to come, and God always keeps his promise. Therefore, Isaac must live. Whether that's rational or not, no matter what God is saying, Abraham knows that God keeps his promise, and the promise was through Isaac. He knows that now. He's through his failures and his successes. He has grown strong in faith. And we we get a little help from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11. He tells us what Abraham believed, that Abraham believed that even if he did have to, if it was necessary to go through with um, sacrificing Isaac, that God would raise him back from the dead. And that he told his servants, you guys wait here because until the boy and I return. And he was serious about that. He really believed he was coming off that mountain with Isaac. That doesn't mean it wasn't hard to go up the mountain. He was still having to trust God. But his trust gave him this real assurance and this conviction that he was coming down. And it's not trust he would have had 35 years ago, but he had grown strong. And he was convinced. So he didn't, he didn't waver through his many years with God and his faith, but he did need to grow. And, and through that growth, he's now ready to experience a much greater trial. And, and it's one that God knows he's going to pass. And God, what God is doing here is God is inviting this more mature believer up into his own heart so that Abraham can experience, experience briefly and incompletely what God is going to experience fully. You know, when God walked through those sacrificial pieces in, in Genesis 15, God was making this great, amazing statement, if you break covenant, let me die. And at that moment, Abraham, if he understood it, he could receive it with joy, but he doesn't feel what God feels. You know, that's a moment of pain and joy for God. But here God's giving Abraham an opportunity to experience both the pain and joy of offering up your son, and Abraham's not actually going to have to go through it. And it's, it's one more reminder to Abraham that he and his seed deserve the wrath of God for their sin. They deserve to die. But a ram was given 
in their place. And God gave Abraham this symbolic substitute in anticipation of that day when God really would go through offering up his own son as a true substitute. And there's, there is a significant difference there in that Jesus is, Jesus is also fully God. So it's, it's not God choosing for his son without his son having a say. It's, it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have made a plan of love where the Son is going to willingly, um, just as God willingly offers the Son, the, off, the Son willingly offers himself. And, and Abraham just barely got to taste you know, what that would be like in the heart of a father to have to, to willingly give his, his son in the place of another. This was a covenant test, and Abraham passed. And the test did not make Abraham worthy of God. The test showed Abraham's faith to be true. But it was a moment that helped Abraham himself to see that, wow, I really believe. You know, that's often our, the result of our trial. We pass through the trials. It's, it's not that God needs to see if we have true faith. God knows we have true faith. But it helps us to see that we have true faith. It's like, like ore when it's passed through the intense fire, and the fire shows, um, in the case of Abraham, that that ore is true gold. When he passed through the fire, his faith was shown real. So true faith means that something has clicked at the core of our being. We know that God's real. We know that God's good. We know that we should base our life on his word. And we, but there's still the reality that we struggle and fail. We let fear override what we know to be true, like Abraham did. Or we help God out without asking God how we should help him out. You know, we just make our own strategies and bulldoze ahead. We just, we kind of maybe don't talk for God for a while because we don't want him to interfere with the plan. But um, hopefully we're growing from those failures. Hopefully we don't waver in belief that God is real and God is good and that our life is in his hands. And if you have true faith, you've got that down in the, the core of your soul. You know he's good and you know he's got you. Abraham is our model. This is the human side of, of the covenant relationship, that God's side is grace. He offers us grace and we receive it by faith. And, and faith is this this belief that God will do what God promises to do. So I, I want to finish with the fourth concept real briefly, but so let me just run through these four concepts that we get here in the second half part of chapter four. Uh, the first concept is that covenant requirements follow covenant acceptance. So circumcision, baptism, whatever it is that God tells us to do under the second question of covenant, that follows the acceptance that we have in the first question of covenant. Covenant requirements follow after covenant acceptance. Concept number two, God's promise depends on God's grace. So get that God's promise does not depend on your ability to keep the covenant requirements, and it doesn't depend on the strength of your faith. Your faith does not make God's promise secure. God's grace and his strength to do what he said he was going to do, that's what makes it secure. And your faith, even it's small as a mustard seed, if it's so weak, but you do believe, then you're safe. But concept number three, that faith does need to be real. Even if it's weak, even if you're often confused or you're, you have fear and you're still struggling with trying to grow in your faith, faith does need to be real. There's some real reception of grace. Um, concept number 
three is that faith is a belief that God will perform what he has promised. And then concept number four is that the promise to Abraham set the precedent for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as it was for Abraham, so also it is for us and Jesus. So that's how we'll wrap up. This whole chapter has focused on that one verse that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so that we've just been developing that and Paul's been drawing out these these concepts based on that that idea. Um, and so let's let's just sum up how Abraham has been a precedent for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's just read the text. It's Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25. This is Paul summing it all up. Therefore it was also reckoned to him as righteousness. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over for our transgressions, and was raised for our justification. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.